All right. Well, good evening, everybody. Joining me here at Wilton tonight, we have uh, John and Tony and Joe and Paul and on Zoom. We have Rannigan and Cynthia and Keith and Doug. And tonight we're going to uh, look at the third of the 10 ox herding pictures. Uh, the one that's titled Seeing the Ox. So we've aroused the aspiration that puts us on this path. We've seen traces and now we actually uh, get that initial glimpse of the ox itself. And the ox, please keep in mind, is self. So this is depicting, talking about the uh, the experience, the initial experiences we have in the practice of, of, of intimately experiencing self, not the intellectual self, not the idea of self that we're constantly fabricating, but true self. So that's what we're gonna look at tonight. So it's a big, big step in the practice. Big, big step. And I'll start with uh, Dido's poem. Oops, which means. My phone. <laughs> For reasons which you'll see in a moment. Mm. Okay. The song of the yellow oriole echoes in the forest. Warm sun, gentle breeze, willows green along the shore. The ox has no place to turn in the brambles. So we need to be clear on this uh, yellow oriole. Of course, now. We don't, I don't have enough signal strength to pull it up. <laughs> well, that was a good thought here. <laughs> there we go. This is a yellow oriole. So we're, we're in the forest hearing this.
the Oriole has a uh, close relationship with the ox. So if you hear one, you know the ox has to be nearby. <laughs> so be alert. And the last line here. So the first two lines, of course, are this wonderful pastoral setting. But then the last line talks, brings the ox into the picture. And it says the ox has no place to turn in the brambles. And for the, if you have your book and you look at the picture, you see the rump of the ox, but not the front half. So it could almost give the uh, image of, of, uh, of him being caught. And the brambles, that is, is a term that Dido's fond of using uh, throughout his teachings. And they always refer to, to our attachments, our existence in the world of samsara, the things that are constantly hooking us, the brambles very literally. So the ox has no place to turn in the brambles. So it's pointing to this ordinary daily existence of, of being entangled. But uh, actually the original poem that Dido uh, work from and just making some slight amendments to kind of give it a Zen Mountain Monastery, Catskill Mountain uh, flavor, has an extra line that I wanted to inject into tonight's discussion uh, because I think it adds a, another element to it. Uh, otherwise, it reads pretty similarly except of course, instead of the yellow Oriole, it's now a bush warbler. And your, your uh, link did come through, I, I saw that. <laughs> uh, but then when we get to the ox, uh, the original poem says, nowhere can the ox escape to hide. But then the additional line, but those majestic horns, are difficult to draw. And I don't uh, drop that one off. And if we come back now and look at the, the picture and basically the, the original picture actually kind of reverses Dido's. Dido, you see the rump, or I shouldn't say Dido, it wasn't his picture. It was, I think, Kaz Tanahashi did, did the, the, paint, the pictures. But in this picture, uh, you don't see the rump, you see the head, you see the horns. So it's, it's like it's being caught by the rear in the brambles. 
But uh, more importantly than that, the fact that the majestic horns are difficult to draw. And just kind of hold that in mind because we're going to be discussing that general topic when we uh, start diving into the study of, of this, this uh, picture. But to draw something, it's, it's in many respects, you could see is comparable to our use of language. You know, you draw a line and a line is separating things. So the horns become separately delineated from the rest of the head, for instance. So you're very much in drawing the horns in the world of, of the ordinary everyday, the relative, our samsaric existence. But with this glimpse of true self, of no eye, no ears, no nose, no horns, right? <laughs> to carry that forward, uh, would make it difficult to draw. How would you draw it? No horns. In other words, how would you talk about this experience? How would you use words or even art to try to describe it? <laughs> so, uh, come back to Dido now that we've done justice to. Uh, <laughs> to that final line of the poem, which I think is, is an important one. You know, Dido says that this stage, the third stage, pivots on getting the first glimpse of the true nature of the self. And the word pivot is, I've always seen as, as a powerful term. Uh, I think it was Katagiri who was the first teacher that I, I, I uh, read about it, that used it. The sense of uh, when we experience true self, what, what makes pivot such a, such a good term for, for attempting to describe that is the fact that you're in the same place. There's just the turning. We talk about turning words <laughs> to, to help instill awakening. Give me a turning word. And, and that is pointing to this pivot. So it's not saying that we need to go any, any other place. It's right where we are. It's the act of pivoting. So this stage is a pivoting, which gives, is what gives us the first glimpse of the true nature of the self, our true nature, 
and of course the true nature of reality ultimately because there's no separation in this experience it's an experience of unity of harmony where distinctions drop off as a result of this pivot He goes on then to say, it's about becoming completely awake and seeing clearly, but for just a moment. So these initial insights are fleeting. But they're brought about through practice. You know, he goes on to to talk about how they often arise during more prolonged intensive sitting, which is why we do Zazenkai and Sashin. Because truth be told, they're far more important than any talks that, that I'm going to give. It's this practice of Zazen. So in my talks, and I think most teachers also see it this way, it's really just trying to to keep encouraging people in the practice. But it's the practice and it's your practice. And my role as teacher and the Sangha's role as your fellow practitioners are to to provide support in that practice for your well-being and for the well-being of all beings. And that's it. That's it. You know, our practice can really be summed up in many different ways, but I think for me, I've always seen the three pure precepts, which we do monthly as part of the uh, full moon ceremony, kind of sums it up nicely about uh, uh, avoiding evil, practicing good for the benefit of all beings. Period. End of story. That's it. And Prajna, seeing the truth of impermanence and no self nature, is to drop us right in the middle of those three pure precepts where they become that's our nature. It's not something imported from the outside, the way in most uh, theologies with a deity figure, you know, that's exactly what's coming in. There's, There's an external factor 
But this is a, a very personal path with nothing outside brought in. To avoid evil, practice good for the benefit of all beings. Seeing our interbeing, our interdependence. And to, to come back to the point I was making about the difficulty of, of, of drawing the horns, you know, Dido says, in getting that first glimpse of the ox, of our true nature, we're not quite clear what it is that we're seeing. We've had an insight. <laughs> it's made a mark on us. But to... And Dido spends uh, a considerable amount of time talking about our wanting to put it into words. I mean, we do have this this strong uh, sense, I think, that for for something to be to be truly existent means it has to be named if it doesn't have a name then its existence becomes kind of nebulous well what is it well, <laughs> well and i'm not buying it then if you can't tell me <laughs> sounds like you're making it up when the reality is that's that's what we do We are storytellers, all of our languages, we're we're making it up. Not that we're intent, I don't mean making it up because we're we're trying to deceive anybody necessarily. Could be doing it in all good faith, but we're always just making it up. So this, at this time, as we study the self and get a glimpse of our true self, uh, we're now, our experience of our lives goes to such an intimate level that we recognize words aren't adequate. They don't get it. They They can't express it. So in that sense, we're not quite clear what it is that we're seeing. Kind of echoes uh, Dylan's ballad of a thin man. There's something happening, but you don't know what it is. (laughs) Do you, Mr. Buddha? So at best, we have a general sense of what we're looking at. But we at least begin to recognize that this is going beyond, beyond our normal 
discriminating mind and its labeling of things. And he then points out something important, uh, important just in terms of any time we're experiencing this, this union, this oneness. He talks about the six senses have to merge, the normal five senses plus consciousness, mind. This merging so that they don't exist in and of themselves. For that to happen, we haven't really done the pivot. We're still in that world of differentiation. But when our senses are operating, but we're not processing it the way we normally do, they've merged. So we still experience that raw experience, but now it has this, this sense to it of, of being joined together with rather than separate from. Or in other words, the subject object distinction is dropped away is vital to getting a glimpse of true self. It's our sense of self drops off, which is why Dogen said to study Zen is to study the self, to study the self is to forget the self. It drops away. And there's just this, the world of suchness, just this coming together, just so. Thus come, thus gone. The nature of experience, Tathagata, thus come when, thus gone. So there's nothing there, no thingness. And that's, of course, wrapped up within the two basic uh, truths of existence of impermanence and no self-nature. So it's from that that we experience this merging of the six senses or any list you want to come up with, the five aggregates, of course, also merge, form, feelings, perceptions, impulses, consciousness. That's just you know, our, our makeup, our made up story of who we are, the way we arrange it, but we can actually let that go. And then we've merged, we're in this place of the merging of the five aggregates. Whatever the list is, you know, the Eightfold Path we're studying in Jukai, Jukai class, they don't exist on their own. They're merged. The Four Noble Truths, including the Eightfold Path, 
all the Dharma teachings, everything is merged. So ultimately it comes down to just this. And just this excludes nothing. Everything is contained within it. So it doesn't make any sense from this pivot place to be dwelling on all these distinctions, differentiations. They lose their significance from this pivot point of unity. It would be like, I mean, I think we we get this if we're experiencing our union with all beings, then to go on and on about, well, but this is how they're all different, you know, this is, don't lose sight of that fact. And we would, from, from this place of, of union, that wouldn't, it would be like babbling on. What, what, what are you getting at? So this is, this is what makes it such a deep experience and such a departure from our normal, ordinary view of things. Of course, we do ultimately come back, hopefully, <laughs> to, to the world, the conventional world, where we can uh, continue to, to live with all these differentiations. But as we continue to practice the prajna that we get these early glimpses of continues to be nurtured to repeat itself and to grow and to manifest not only in our deeper understanding, but in our lives. So it does change the way we interact in the conventional world of this and that. In fact, if it doesn't, then the practice isn't really going very deep. So it's not about understanding teachings, being able to remember things. It's about actually letting go, opening oneself, and seeing more deeply, more deeply than we see in our normal everyday lives.
And it was the in inadequacy from our standpoint of that everyday seeing that led us in the first stage to do this. So we weren't content with that. We sense this need to go beyond. To go into the deeper waters. So these moments of directly perceiving reality are prajna, wisdom, directly, not mediated with our thoughts, but directly seen. And Dido has a nice way of, of phrasing this. He says, within the difficulties of our lives, through our practice, we come to a resting point. So within the difficulties of our lives means in our samsaric world, just as it is. The world we're very familiar with. Again, we don't have to go to any special place. It's right where you are. But it's through our practice. So this isn't a Dogen text, but it sure <laughs> calls Dogen to mind the primacy of practice, that practice is enlightenment, and enlightenment is practice. They're one and the same. And it takes place within the difficulties of our lives, our afflictions, our dukkha. But we have to practice. We have to practice. And when we do, we can come to a resting point. Resting from busy mind. The resting point that, that arises naturally from this practice of letting go. Letting go. Each time we let go, we open up. When we don't let go and we hold on, we close up. So practice is to let go and open up. And that comes from a resting point. Not where our mind is just monkey mind, reactive, bouncing all over. So the seeing the true nature of the self is the experience of no separation from the totality of the universe, from everything. So, uh, a wondrous 
uh, photos being made available by the James Webb Telescope. Yeah, to, to see no separation between our true nature and that glimpse into the expansive universe. To, to be able to experience that, that union. And last week, I uh, prematurely read Einstein's credo, but this was actually the point where I intended to share it. So it's well worth a second reading, I think. It's short enough. Okay. Uh, back to the text first, seeing the true nature of the self is the experience of no separation from the totality of the universe. And now from uh, Mr. Einstein, a human being is part of a whole called the universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circles of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. So that, that's really it. This is <laughs> he was at least at the third stage. <laughs> Probably a little beyond that. He had seen the true nature. He got it. So we've, we talked, I think it was last week, about the role of insight. And insight by its very nature involves unification because we're see, seeing things directly without uh, the, the, the mediation of our thoughts and our logical analysis and so on and so forth. It's a direct seeing. So insight, this is what makes it uh, the natural means of accessing our true nature of, of unification, of being part of the whole. It can only happen through insight. Because if it's a conceptual analysis, by its very nature, that entails separation. That's what the driving force of concepts is. 
So to be able to settle the mind, letting go of our thought process, what Dogen called non-thinking. Just letting go of thoughts, opening the hand of thought is creating the space for insight to happen naturally. We're not trying to direct it. It will happen if we create the conditions for it. In fact, it really can't happen by our directing it. You know, we can we can do practices just like in the artistic realm, you know, writers, for instance, will you could view it almost like uh, the practice of zazen for us is that a writer would every day sit down and write. Some days there'll be great insights. <laughs> Some days, maybe not. But it's a practice. I think that's a very apt uh, description of our zaza. That we don't know from one period of zaza to the next what that's going to be. But just like a writer or a or a composer or an artist who goes into the studio every day. Our studio is right here. <laughs> and we're working on ourselves. Who am I? at this very moment, not some grand conceptualization. Maybe rather than who am I, it should be what is this? Just this. Nothing special. Pretty ordinary. One point Dido makes that I think is really important to keep in mind is that our uh, innate attempt, uh, the need we have to intellectualize our lives is a continuous peril of the spiritual journey. It's taking us away from that journey. We distance ourselves from our lives, he says, with our thoughts. So hence the, the essential 
aspect of zazen for our practice of letting go of thoughts, non-thinking, to be able to go beyond thoughts and thinking. So that's pretty much what's contained in uh, in this third picture. And actually, uh, the last thing then uh, to wrap up our look at this is uh, the the commentary uh, that that I uh, included in this past Monday's email. Uh, which I'll, I'll close out by reading this. Led by the sound, one starts out on the path. And at first sight of it, one sees the origin of things. All of one's senses work harmoniously. Their presence manifests in all the things one usually does. Just like the taste of salt in water or the glue in dye, it is definitely there, but is not discreet. If one's eyes are wide open, one sees it in brackets truth clearly, not as some, something else. So at the side of it, one sees the origin of things, the, uh, the original face. You know, that's what our true nature is. So this third stage where we get that first sighting, that's what we're, in our attempt, feeble attempt to put it into words, uh, one way of giving expression to it is that's the origin of things, going to the origin. And uh, all of one's senses work harmoniously is, of course, that merging of senses that I uh, referred to. This going beyond our differentiations. And the fact that their presence, our senses, our aggregates, all these lists manifest in all the things that we usually do, all the things we usually experience. So they're always there. This isn't you know, some special uh, experience reserved for just special moments in our life. It's always happening. So that's why the, the meaning of Buddha is to awaken. It's about awakening to what's always happening, not to create a special event in our lives. It's to awaken. And of course, the referencing to salt and water or glue and dye, it's not discrete, it's the sense of of perfect merging, perfect merging, completely 
one with. And then, and then finally, if one's eyes are wide open, of course, eyes are just one, one example of all of our ways of experiencing things, including our mind. Remember, that's one of the senses too. It's the sixth sense in Buddhism. So wide open, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind. And then one sees, sees it clearly and not as something else. No subject-object duality. We see it. We are it. And it is us. So we can go on when we come back into our world, in the world of this and that, making our distinctions. We need to do that. But now it's with that deeper understanding of what those concepts really are at their heart. We're no longer deceived that that's the true nature of reality. Now, <laughs> we're understanding reality to be one. Just like when we look at a vast, wide open view of the universe now. It's one. We can certainly label you know, certain clusters of galaxies and individual galaxies within those and individual stars and, and planetary systems within all that, but it's one. To see it as a unity. And that's really what we're talking about. And to to experience that in viewing a photo from the James Webb, it's an intuitive, insightful takeaway. We could look at it as an astronomer studying particular facts about the universe. And that's of value too. But what we're talking about here is this intuitive, that transcends our dis distinguishing mind, our conceptual mind. So the more we practice, the more that prajna, understanding, informs our life. is the background to the way we understand things. And rather than crippling us in our ability to work with this and that, it will, should actually enhance it to see things in their true nature.
rather than in a deluded way, that they really are separate. And of course, just in everyday life, in a more mundane way, you know, we're, that point gets driven home to us constantly. Whether we're talking about the spreading of diseases and a disease that happens in one part of the world, very far removed from us. Well, now we, we get, we don't need a spiritual journey to understand that yeah, it really is interconnected. It's one. So our everyday world actually just serves to reinforce this over and over and over again. So that's all I had to say about it. I have to say, Dean, that that was a beautiful talk. Um, I know it was beautiful material, but I'm also um, very thankful that you shared it in the way that you shared it. It uh, was clear, but it was also really thoughtful. And I can make so many applications to struggles that I have. So um, I, I don't really have a question. I just want to say thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Randy. John? That's what, uh, Dean and I were having a conversation about some of this stuff earlier. And, and um, as I'm thinking some more about that, I more and more I think, at least I tend to think of enlightenment, being able to see things as one, as going forward, if you will. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure it's not going backward. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure, as I think about it, if when we're born, we don't differentiate. Everything's merged. The first thing we learn typically is, oh, this is me and this is mom. But before that, mom is us. I mean, we, that's the theory. And we learn to differentiate, which, which made me think a bit about animals, and animals begin to differentiate, not like we do. We don't, as far as we know, they don't name things or, or 
but there's a basic differentiation in animals in the large sense of animal versus vegetable. Of you, you differentiate, you know, your species. You differentiate who your predators are. You differentiate food from non-food. So it's a beginning of what we right? and the alpha male and your. That's an important or, or, piece of information to know. <laughs> to have some clarity. Or if you've got three cats, but just the more I think about it, and the more I, it, it, it really goes backwards. Back to something very basic. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know that I can say more about the thought right now, but that's kind of what was rolling around in my head. Yeah. 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 I suspect the, the book you're reading that, uh, oh. that talks about Uji is probably helping to, <laughs> because uh, this whole notion of past, present, future, that's all fabrication. That's it's just stuff we make up to, to organize our experience. But what I've been talking about here in its application to time is Dogen's Uji, where, because you know, even, I mean, we're, we're familiar with shrinking it all down to the present. The present is all, all that really is, but of course, because of Impermanence, there's no such thing as a present. There's nothing to hold on to. So that kind of, that's the final prop that holds up our state conventional view of time. But yet there is time. It's just that it's lost. All, another term Dido likes to use a lot, which I always found helpful, is the reference system. So the reference system we're accustomed to has kind of been brushed aside now. And you can begin initially, you kind of lose your bearings to some extent. But, uh, and that's what Dogen's trying to do with Uji is just to, to demonstrate that you know, all past, present, and future, they're, they're everywhere. <laughs> so yeah, everything goes back, everything goes forward, everything's right here. And, and it's just all this big ball of time that uh, we, we'd lose our bearings if we were always living with that sense of it. But you know, just like uh, living with uh, our understanding of our, our own true nature, I think you know, Dogen's point with Uji is that's a key component of reality is, is time. I think Einstein, if he had read Uji, I would have loved yeah. <laughs> his response to that. Uh, I think he would have been astonished. 13th century. Relativity, and he's talking about the, the notion of time being kind of jerked out of its absolute nature. 
and the transfer time is is relative. <laughs> Where are you at? How fast do you go? It's interdependent with all these other There's a quote I believe from Nico Scott may not be, but um, the quote goes, God invented time so everything wouldn't happen all at once. Yeah, that's very telling. That's good. <laughs> I always like that quote, but it's, yeah. I don't think it was God that did that. I think man did that. Yeah. <laughs> But you're saying that everything does happen. Mm -hmm. Everything happens in the past and future. Anything else? Okay. Getting about that time, I think. I vow to myself and to each of you to commit myself daily to the healing of our world and the welfare of all beings, to live on earth more lightly and less violently in the food, products, and energy I consume, to draw strength and guidance from the living earth, the ancestors, the future generations, and my brothers and sisters of all species, to support others in our work for the world, and to ask for help when I need it, to pursue a daily practice that clarifies my mind, strengthens my heart, and supports me in observing these vows. Well, thanks again.